HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Root 11 Potato Chips. Made with a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. For more information, visit rt11.com. Hi, this is Joe Campanelli, the host of In the Drink. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hello, good afternoon, and welcome. I don't know why I'm talking like that. Anyway, this is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. We have a great show today. Um, we are lucky enough to be going to listen to um, the uh, verbal stylings of one Michael Moss. Um, Michael uh, is taking a leave from his uh, work as an investigative reporter for the New York Times, but you probably all remember the incendiary show uh, article that went up on January 19th, uh, just a few weeks ago, called Animal Welfare at Risk in Experiments for the Meat Industry. It details a, <clears throat> shall we say, Dr. Mengele-type approach to animal experimentation that has appalled consumers and industry alike and has spawned pending legislation about animal welfare. Michael has also written for The Wall Street Journal, Newsday, and The Atlanta Journal and Constitution. He earned a Pulitzer Prize in 2010 for reporting on the dangers of contaminated meat and helped popularize the term pink slime. And of course... Last but certainly not least was his uh, best-selling book, um, Salt, Sugar, and Fat, um, <clears throat> which came out a couple of years ago. It has a subtitle, which I neglected to write down, but Michael, you can tell us that. Welcome to the show, and thanks so much for coming on. Oh, thanks for having me, Katie. And speaking of salt, sugar, fat, as you know, I can't endorse products, but <laughs> a big cheer goes up in this house whenever your sponsor, Route 11 Chips, is mentioned, because <laughs> my kids for two uh, will go out of their way to find Route 11 potato chips, which are, by our estimation, fantastic. I think they're about the best ones on the market. It's, <laughs> I, you know, I mean, absolutely. But nothing but the best for Heritage Radio Network. I mean, And we've on. been to the factory. We can attest to that. You have? Have? How yes. cool are you, Michael? I love stuff like that. That's awesome. So um, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming back. And thanks yes. for talking about this um, particular uh, story, <clears throat> which was, you know, totally grist to my mill. I love anything that makes, you know, the meat uh, 
meat sector, whether it's science and research or the meat industry, look like what it's actually doing, which is not always the best thing. Um, tell us a little bit about um, the story. It's, uh, it details the Clay Center for U.S. Meat Animal. It's a U.S. Meat Animal Research Center. Uh, why do they have uh, such an animal research center? What are they doing there? This is a federally funded unit of the Department of Agriculture, um, founded 50, well now 51 years ago, in order to do fundamental research that will help the meat industry. And on site, 55 square miles in the middle of Nebraska, they have some 30,000 animals, cows, sheep, and pigs, and some 43, 44 scientists, you know, many of whom are hard at work, you know, reinventing, reimagining, reengineering those three animals in order to make them more productive, more efficient, and more profitable for the meat industry. And it's sort of the nature of that experimentation, um, which increasingly bothered some of the people who worked there who eventually came to me to, uh, to ask if I would look into it. So your investigation uh, came, in fact, directly from the, or perhaps there were other people involved, but from the reported concerns of the recently retired vet and scientist uh, named James Keene. The first question that struck me when I was reading that he had worked there for 24 years was why did it take him so freaking long to blow the whistle? Yeah, I think there are two reasons for that. And actually, he's not retired. He was barred from the center itself uh, for having dealings with me. But he's still employed at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, which has sort of this adjunct facility at the center, uses it as a teaching center. I think the answer to your question is kind of twofold. One, in the early days, he was seeing sort of incidents of animal care poor animal care in his estimation that incre- you know that increasingly bothered him and he would report those incidents to his supervisors you know you know one by one they were sporadic though um, and nothing sort of happened as a result of his reporting that but he became sort of increasingly concerned about the experimentation itself and as he tells it you know his own thinking about the role of these of farm animals, the 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 the, um, the obligation of scientists to treat them as humanely as possible, even in experimentation, evolved tremendously. His own daughters were pushing him to rethink his own sort of you know assumption or buying into the notion that production equals you know equals profitability equals gain. And he increasingly began challenging kind of the fundamental nature of that, and that's what I think eventually would let him to contact me. Well, well, certainly, um, as we will discuss in a, in a few minutes, uh, one of the projects which went on for the longest time, the, uh, trying to breed more c- cattle that bred had more twins and triplets, uh, was a distinct disaster. But um, let's let's move on for a second because um, one of the things that you also point out in your article is that most labs that experiment on animals, whether it's for consumer-related research like you know um, cosmetics or I guess any other aspect of the meat industry, they are all subject to the Animal Welfare Act of 1966. Why did this particular center 
um, get away with not complying with those regulations? I think their answer is because they could. They convinced <laughs> the Department of Agriculture that because they were experts <laughs> in cows, pigs, and sheep, they could provide their own oversight of their experimentation. And also, going back to the Animal Welfare Act, it expressly exempted farm animals from the kind of protections that were awarded to cats and dogs used in experimentation. Universities over the years became much more sensitive to consumer animal welfare concerns and adopted their own voluntary measures to sort of substitute for the Animal Welfare Act. But this facility remained convinced that it was smart enough and bold enough and and needed to sort of keep driving for production that that kind of external oversight would slow it down. You know, I think it's, I'm going to take a quick moment aside here. I think it's fascinating at the uh, at the top of the interview, you, might, you pointed out that these are USDA funded, this is a USDA funded research center meeting. It's funded by tax dollars. And yet this um, focus on uh, increasing productivity, uh, profitability and efficiency in breeding animals um, you know, very much smacks of money that would come from the meat industry itself. So there's no, they are not part of the, they weren't uh, contributing funds to this research. They were just the happy recipients of taxpayer-funded research that would increase their bottom lines. I'm, I'm so, a little surprised yeah, so, by that. So most of, the, most of the funding at the center comes from the USDA. But I think, as I briefly mentioned in the piece but didn't elaborate on, the industry also gives the center grant money to do specific projects. Mm -hmm. Um, Much of that was aimed at sort of improving the food safety pathogen problem with with meat, but there were other things as there are other things as well. I mean, I think this, you know, the center very clearly sees itself as a partner with the private meat industry to solve the industry's sort of high priority problems. And, and frankly, that's reflective of the Department of Agriculture overall in itself. I mean, as I write in the book, they pay so much attention to promoting agriculture and food giant policies and needs, sure. and very, very little attention to to sort of consumer interest issues like better nutrition, or in this case, animal welfare. Right. Very interesting. I mean, I, I, I find that just like amazing that we, and, and also, let me, can we think of another single industry in the United States that has the benefit of federally funded tax dollars, uh, you know, consumer funded tax dollars to, um, to further the research in their, in their own fields? Is there anybody you know, else the, who the, does the, this? It, you know, it's so interesting too because, you know, the, the Department of Agriculture was, was originally named the, the People's Department when it was set up way back when because yeah. the people People were agrarian back then, but but things have changed now. And to, you know, and answer your question, I, I I can't. I mean, I am time and again astounded at this sort of at this sort of inherent conflict of interest within the Department yeah. of Agriculture, where one of its missions is to promote is to promote the food industry, and one of its missions is to protect consumers on nutrition and safety, and in this case, animal welfare, and the two clash and almost consist. Instantly, the latter, the consumer interest, gets the short uh, straw. Evidently, um, <clears throat> that's 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 a revelation that I just you know I'm kind of like I'm still working that through in my mind. But anyway, 
let's go on about the actual article itself. So you said one of the things you also pointed out is that the USDA requires facilities like the Clay Center that we're discussing to have frequent meetings, uh, like at least twice a year, right? And then produce minutes that they can then review. Uh, yeah, this goes back to, to the oversight the question. So back or, in 2002, yeah. kind of following on the heels of universities that were adopting tougher oversight rules over their scientists, the, the USDA issued this, this declaration that all of its facilities shall create and have in place these animal use care committees that will approve or disapprove experiments, monitor those experiments, um, track them and track their decision making mm-hmm. through minutes that are available into the public and also have sort of outside independent representation on those panels this facility doesn't do that. Again, it argues that it has an alternative method, which is basically its own scientists approving the experiments. In some cases, many cases, the person leading the experiment will be down as the approving person on the, on the, on the experimental plan. Well, I, I'm hoping that's going to change. So, um, we're, you know, uh, one of the another thing that struck me in the article is um, one individual, one doctor or scientist said that he refused to soften, quote, soften the diagnosis on a particular animal death. And then the center uh, subsequently had an outside veterinarian change the death record um, so that it wouldn't look quite so starkly as if uh, this experiment led to an untimely death on the part of this animal. Um, you know, are there going to be any uh, legal repercussions uh, for activity like this? And and were other whistleblowers either, you know, ejected or squelched uh, in your research? Did you find other incidents of... So there were um, even starker cases where employees were threatened with dismissal if they didn't do what they were being told to do, which they thought they were they were unethical. One one former center official actually called a what he thought was a whistleblower hotline at the Department of Agriculture, and the very next day was called on the carpet by the person he at at the center he he was identifying as being the problem, and and. I didn't mention the story because it's not directly animal welfare related, but he he feels so strongly about it as being sort of representative of the center's kind of resistant to hear criticism, concerns, and sort of deal with that adequately. And, you know, quite frankly, this is typical of a lot of government institutions that aren't exposed to sort of, you know, adequate outside oversight. You, you know, this this sense develops that, you know, we know best and and criticism will slow us down. And again, look, the center will argue we do listen to our people. We're, we, you know, we've started changing this to some extent. You can kind of see in some of the documents where when people raise their hand to complain, there was some acknowledgement on that along with the pushback. But I did get the sense of kind of this, you know, at times this culture of fear among people there. Well, look, and even with this story, I mean, one of the one of the one of the, the veterinarians who was deeply concerned about um, one of their ongoing experimental projects pleaded with me not to identify that person in the story for fear that their job would be jeopardized. Sure. Wow, that's shocking. Um, and so, but there, it doesn't appear that there's, in the wake of this expo- expose of yours, is there, is there, do you think the USDA is pursuing any kind of internal, um, 
you know, any sincere effort to uh, change that culture? Because what you're talking well, about is yeah, a culture. So if you read, so, so right after the story came out, the, the Secretary of Agriculture issued this directive, which basically said we're going to do like a few things. One, we're going to create an internal ombudsman who can hear concerns from employees. That may or may not work. Yeah, but he yeah. also said we're going to rethink. We're going to come up with a new strategy and rethink our research priorities because I think this is the real big question here and, uh-huh. and it's kind of the last chapter of, of the article in the New York Times yeah. that I get to which is I mean to what extent has this research facility actually failed in its biggest mission which is serving the meat industry because increasingly some of the biggest producers some of the biggest grocery chains are responding to this increasing demand demand by consumers for meat that's from animals that are that are cared for as much as they possibly can be. Yes. And you know, time and again I saw instances where the center in its experimentation and its goals was going the complete opposite direction. For example, pigs. Mm-hmm. You know, they had a recent experiment where they tried, you know, where where the where the objective was weaning piglets from their mothers at 10 days old in order to put them on a on a you know a manufactured drink that would make leaner meat well you know whole foods and other grocers are now you know pushing their suppliers to eventually get to 56 days before the piglets are weaned from their moms right. in order to avoid the stress and the trauma and the health problems associated with um, with earlier weaning absolutely well, another um, another egregious example that leads me right to my next question um, is uh, you you went to on in some length about um, trying to develop uh, twins and triplets in cattle breeding, and um, and in a quote from the article, which I'm going to read now, asked whether in hindsight they, as in the center, considered the death rate acceptable. Center officials said in a statement that the experiment had been valuable, adding to the body of knowledge about the mechanics and the consequences of producing twins. Some of its trials have continued long after meat producers balked at the harm they caused animals. So given that ranchers refused to breed their animals to have twins and triplets, um, why would they, and they have continued to follow this particular study, if I'm not mistaken, did I get that right? So the research, uh, the project started in 1981. In tw- 1981, in 2013, they sold off the cows, but they are still selling. They hold an auction every year to sell the semen from bulls that create twinnings for those ranchers out there who, you know, who still might be interested in, in, in you know, experimenting with this with their with their own herd. So in some ways, the experiment is sort of still continuing. So, you know, their response, you know, I think it's sort of very telling. I mean, they see themselves as scientists doing the experimentation and kind of putting the data out there for the industry then to choose, to look at and choose to adopt or not. Uh But one of the startling things that you mentioned with this experiment was like, you know, for years and years and years, they were getting pushback and, and certainly, you know, indifference to the findings of their of their experiment. They were hugely successful in getting their cows to produce twins at a rate as high as 55%. 55 right. out of 100 cows would have twins 
or triplets, but at the same time, the mortality rate for those twins and triplets was running more than four times that of single, the normal single cows that you get right. naturally. And, and, you know, and ranchers, and look, this story wasn't based on sort of bouncing these ideas off of vegans or, or animal welfare advocates. You know, the feedback I got and the blowback on this center has come from the meat industry itself. I mean, ranchers would show me the extent to which they went to save every last one of their animals, feeling they had a moral obligation, a religious obligation beyond finances to care for these animals. Yes, they're going to slaughter them at the end of their life, and we're going to eat them. But in their minds, these ranchers, these farmers growing these farm animals, see that as actually increasing their obligation to the animal and to give them, to do everything they can to give them the, the best possible life for that time they're on Earth. Yeah, I think that's definitely the case with most of the people I know in the livestock industry. So, but isn't it true that, I mean, just to play the devil's advocate for a second here, I mean, and actually not the devil's advocate, but these centers for agricultural research or meat animal research, I mean, don't they also produce a lot of valuable information? I mean, not just about whether or not cows should have twins or triplets, but um, but also, uh, you know, food safety uh, issues and uh, how animals respond to certain drugs and stuff like yeah, that. No, uh, I mean, isn't know, that all part of the package as well? the veterinarian scientist who came to me, you know, was renowned for the work he did in trying to reduce the pathogen threat in, mm-hmm. you know, hamburger and other meats. And the center has done some, you know, terrific work, you know, even, you know, identifying food safety issues and then trying to come up with ways to help the industry. The center is also known for its work on genomics with cows. It has enabled ranchers to dial in selective traits that are deemed um, that are that are deemed desirable whether uh-huh. it's coat color or reproduction or growth rates or what have sure. you um, and again sort of one of the issues with this comes back to to what extent is anybody emphasizing the animal welfare traits look there are, there are breeds of pigs that have much stronger maternal instincts and are less apt to roll over and crush their piglets, which I also mentioned in the piece, than others. They may also happen to be, you know, less lean or less tender, and there's always these trade-offs that that are talked about sort of in production. But there's no question that the center has, you know, is seen as having been valuable in some respects to the industry, certainly historically. Yeah, absolutely. I just wanted to get that out there because I feel like, you know, we're throwing, uh, throwing um, you know, mud balls, at the, and there there is some reason for funding these things. But as we said at the top of the show, it's like there is this tremendous conflict of interest between you know doing research to enhance the profitability of the meat industry and doing research to uh, enhance the safety of the consuming public. And uh, you know, somehow the two have been conflated there. Um, and one last question about that. But isn't it true that um, you know most? Uh, certainly scientists and vets accept that a certain amount of suffering on the part of, um, you know, experiment animals on, <clears throat> upon which experiments are made yes. is, is sort of no, the cost absolutely. of... absolutely. And so the, the experts I talked to who 
helped design the external oversight, the accreditation programs that so many universities embrace, you know, are really quick to point out. You know, we're not talking about, you know, avoiding all pain and suffering. We're talking, you know, which, which in some cases then you couldn't do the experiment at all. We're talking about taking, you know, every step possible to minimize the pain and suffering right. of the animals. And that's, that's the goal of the oversight of the accreditation of the experimental plan reviews, um, which is to think hard about whether, A, you need to do the experiment, B, there's not an alternative, and C, have you taken every possible step to protect the animal. Right, right. So with that, we're going to take a short break. We're going to come right back with Michael Moss, and we're going to talk about his February 5th follow-up piece, which describes the uh, legislative steps that USDA and Congress are now considering, thanks to your expose. So stay with us, and we'll be right back with Michael Moss and myself, Katie Kiefer, for What Doesn't Kill You. And this one's called Write It Down by the Landing. This is What Doesn't Kill You on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. following program has been brought to you by Root 11 Potato Chips. From the moment Root 11 Potato Chips dropped their first batch of chips back in the early days of 1992, they understood their destiny as a high-quality producer. Instead of succumbing to the frenzy of mass production, they took advantage of their small size and made chipping a personal art form. The payoff was immediate. An incredible potato chip. With a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. In this world of uncertainty that we live in, Root 11 Potato Chips believes comfort food should be just that. Know where your food comes from. For more information, visit rt11.com. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Katie Kiefer, your host. And I'm on the phone today with Michael Moss, uh, who on January 19th published a rather uh, inflammatory article about USDA-funded research center uh, in Nebraska that was... um, basically abusing animals uh, with impunity. On February 5th, you published a follow-up piece which described the USDA and congressional response to your January 19th piece. Um, Tell us a little bit about that response and the um, introduced legislation uh, commonly known as AWARE, A-W-A-R-E. Right. So, so the USDA response was to, you know, direct kind of a top-down review of, of not just sort of the experimentation in animal care at the facility, but also sort of its, you know, its, its thinking about research priorities. And if, if, if I'm reading that correctly, they are, in fact, becoming more sensitive to this issue that consumers are increasingly wanting animals that are well cared for, maximum 
minimum welfare in the industry itself is is is, is scrambling to respond to that concern, <laughs> and I think the USDA is finally you know coming around sort of adjusting its strategies to match that concern. You know, members of Congress um, you know decided that one thing they could do immediately was close the loophole on the Animal Welfare Act, and for the first time mm-hmm. since it was passed in 1966, apply it to farm animals, including cows, pigs, and sheep, that would, oddly enough, sort of put the Department of Agriculture in charge of inspecting, upholding the law and inspecting the research center because the Department of Agriculture um, enforces the Animal Welfare Act. Some people pointed out that that to them seemed like a conflict of interest. There's this accreditation organization out there that the center has resisted joining. It argues that it's more independent and it can send in auditors who are more flexible and more knowledgeable about farm practices. Um, and I think that they think they would be a better way to go. And then finally, there was a, you know, congressmen are continuing to sort of sign on to a letter urging the, the Department of Agriculture to actually suspend some of the experimentation at the center until they kind of... Until they review what those experiments... Which way they're going. Yeah, right, right, right. Well, one of the... Um, <clears throat> One of the uh, responses that I read, because I think I think we've discussed the fact that I'm, you know, addicted to the trade magazines for the meat industry, and I get a lot of information about sort of their mindset. So Mary Sukup, who uh, writes for Drovers, in fact, is the editor in chief. She says, um, uh, referring to the legislation that is pending, the Aware Act, she says, and I'm quoting here: "Before considering legislation that is based on an article in a news publication that has repeatedly published biased." one-sided attacks on animal agriculture. This legislation, I'm putting that in, was introduced by individuals opposed to modern livestock practices and supported by animal rights groups whose goal is to remove meat from the dinner plate. Um, Just for the record, Michael, was your purpose to remove meat from the dinner plate? You know... Somebody asked me if I ate meat. I, you know, I do have to say that it's becoming increasingly difficult for me to sort of blindly go to a restaurant yeah, no kidding, and have meat without knowing more about who raised it. I mean, this is an industry that's incredibly varied. There are amazing producers out there doing everything they can to maximize the welfare. And then there are other producers who are much more sensitive to the price of meat and the bottom line and profits. And I think you're sort of seeing this. I think what she may be reflecting on, though, there was a huge outcry in the piece from vegans and animal welfare activists, who many of whom I'm sure would prefer that this center didn't exist, that the meat industry didn't exist. You know, those were not the voices that you see in my reporting and the no. article. The strength of the reporting, I think, is that the industry itself was shocked and surprised by and was distancing itself from some of the experimentation going on at the center. That, that I think, is the, is, the, is, the, is the most telling part of the, of the reporting. Well, what was interesting was, like, even on Drovers, there's a, a columnist who writes for them a lot named Dan Murphy, 
Um, and he, you know, he penned an, a, a column of, you know, great outrage over this and said, you know, I'm so glad the Times reported this, et cetera, et cetera. And boy, did he catch flack from his readers. They were like, you should be fired. This is all part of an agenda. How can you say this, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. It was really interesting because the, the rank and file, um, you know, they, they may not uh, want to see animals mistreated, but at the same time, there's sort of, um, I don't know whether it's because uh, they think it's their right to mistreat them uh, or <laughs> whether it's because they feel that any scrutiny whatsoever is going to make people stop eating meat and take away their livelihood. I think one of their concerns is that city folk don't understand farming mm-hmm. and will visit a farm or a ranch and see stuff and sort of misconstrue it. Um, yeah. And, you know, and there's no question. I think I think we all need to be educated more on farm practices and ranching. But I have to say, in that in that follow-up story that you mentioned, I loved Temple Grandin, yeah. the very famous sort of animal welfare advocate who has the ear and the trust of the meat industry in performing some of these third-party audits. You know, you know, her solution is more visibility. She hates the ag-gag laws that yeah. bar people from coming in and photographing. She wants all producers to open their operations, to videotape their operations, and hold themselves to what she calls the wedding guest test. Yeah, I love that analogy. Would you invite (laughs) the guests at your wedding to come see your agricultural operation in full? And if not, you know, maybe you should be rethinking some of your practices. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, she's a hero for me, so, and I know for many other people. Anyway, I want to go on because the Omaha World Herald piece, and let's remember that this all unfolded in Nebraska um, and with the uh, University of Nebraska and Lincoln, um, they, uh, I'll quote again quickly from this, uh, they said the center's research is conducted in accordance with federal regulations and procedures for animal care and use, and that the allegations in that article are not consistent with our experiences of the care of animals at the center, said the dean of UNL's Division of Ag Research. Why is there a disconnect between what you are saying and what their experience of the center's protocols is? Well, I think it goes to the relationship between the university and the center. The center controls the experiments. The university, until recently, has owned the animals and has been there using the center as a teaching facility for for agriculture, for veterinarian students. So I think that the I think that the university's window on the experiments and their ability to sort of, you know, even effect and change the experiment has been really limited. And a number of veterinarians from the university, and Jim Keene is one of them, have sort of pointed out that their power to effect change at the facility is um, is, is extremely limited. And I'm not surprised that the university is, is sort of defending the center as bad as it can because they have a, you know, there's a, there is a relationship between. They benefit from one another. Sure. But um, that said, is there, is the, does the university, for example, plan any kind of investigation of its own or... Um, I would certainly hope so, but I have not heard from them or publicly. I would, mm-hmm. I would certainly hope that they would at least want to take a look at the center's operations from the standpoint, at least, of their students and whether, yeah. in fact, um, 
you know, the question for them is, look, is the center doing everything possibly to increase welfare? Because obviously we want to teach our students, our veterinarian students, about animal welfare. I would think they would be, you know, at least concerned to take a look at that. Yeah, that's why I was so surprised by this kind of stonewalling approach that was recorded in the Omaha World Herald. It was like, really? Well, but you have to remember, so they have been at the center for all these years, and so I can certainly understand, you know, I can I can certainly see why they would be defensive of their of their long history at at the center, but it also may reflect. Look, I mean, any number of scientists at the center that I spoke to and staff people were staunchly defensive of their work, of their practices. They said we care about animal welfare. We're driving to feed the world's growing population, and sometimes there are trade-offs, but we do take steps to protect the animals. And and so it, it kind of depends kind of what viewpoint you're looking at. And much much of the concern that I came across came from animal scientists who are also veterinarians. They're medical right. doctors. They take an oath to protect and help animals. And they have a much different view in many cases. And, and over the years, there's been this friction between the two groups. Very interesting. In fact, you just brought up a point which I, I had in this outline earlier, and then I evidently discarded it. But um, you, there was a quote from one of your sources saying, you know, look, uh, I'll paraphrase here because I didn't keep it. Um, but they essentially they were saying, like, well, this is all essentially done in the service of, you know, feeding the 50 million more people that we will have by 2050 right. or whatever, you know, the not, I, yeah. I can't think of the, of the figures right yeah. now, but it was like, and, and, and just to, to sort of broaden out that quote, um, yeah. that is the standard response from the meat industry when they are faced well, with any allegations yeah. of misdoing. Well, and, and, and the let's food talk about industry that generally, too, the largest food manufacturers all talk about what they call food security now. Mm-hmm. They are convinced that they and their technology and their processing methods are what is going to feed the world in 2050 when we have 9 billion right. people. And you're hearing this a lot. And so you have to, you know, you have to turn to people like Michael Pollan for counter arguments to that and questioning is that true? I mean, is that really how we're going to feed people is with highly processed foods and heavy meat dependence or, or, or what have you? And so that that's a debate. That's a conversation that I think we need to have sooner than later. And as a journalist, you know, I come down on the side of why should we leave this, you know, totally vital question of public health, yeah. you know, in the hands of the companies. Shouldn't the public, shouldn't policy be makers, makers be making that decision now? You well, know, it says something about our... How do we feed this growing population? It says very much about our political process, though, which is that uh, that people are essentially bought and paid for by large industries um, when, they, when they're sent to legislate. And they're not legislating on behalf of the consumer welfare or public health. They're legislating on behalf of corporate welfare. Right. And, uh, you know, and financial gain. And 
Um, yeah, no, and, but, yeah, I know, but Katie, one of the things I learned in doing the book, Salt, Sugar, Fat, and by the way, the subtitle is How the Food Giants Hooked Thank Us. You. This is not a nutrition book. Um, was that these companies are incredibly sensitive to sales. And if people start acting on their conviction that they want to eat meat from animals that are cared for better, that they want to you know, eat food products that are healthier and have more real ingredients, these companies will react and respond. I mean, there's a big question out there whether, you know, to, to the extent to which they can become part of the solution, but they are incredibly sensitive, and I think that's why we've seen Tyson and some of the biggest companies now adopting and pushing their producers to maximize, change their ways, maximize farm animal welfare. Yes, that's right. And withdraw antibiotics. I mean, that's taken five years, but that's starting to happen as well. In direct response to consumer demand, consumer shopping habits. Yes, that is absolutely true. Um, Michael, uh, we're going to have to wrap up in a few minutes, but um, just out of curiosity, there are 49 of these U.S. meat animal research centers. Um, Did any of the other, you know, after your article came out, did you hear from any other personnel in any of the other centers uh, alluding to similar issues? Yeah, well, actually, I heard from people who left the center and now are in private industry. I focused on this center because my sense is, you know, look, it was created to consolidate many of the diverse uh, research, animal research that was going on in other places. My sense is that the boldest, most aggressive experimentation being done, you know, has been at this center. And while some of these other facilities may be doing some work, you know, I think to a large extent they're taking their guidance from some of the centers. So, so I'm actually, you know, not sure the extent to which those other 49 are mm-hmm. significant players in the kind of experimentation production oriented that we're talking about here. Right. Very interesting. So, um, let us turn from that and to what you are working on now, because uh, you alluded to the fact that you are taking a leave from the Times and you're working right. on a new book. So Would you care to discuss that? Um, so, I'm, you know, it's another book about the processed food industry. It's called Hooked Food and Free Will. I'm going to go deeper into the science of addiction Mm -hmm. and the uh, scramble by the food industry to deal with complaints um, that it has been intentionally creating products that cause people to to overeat and... um, and that's where I'm going to go. Hopefully it'll be out at the end of oof, next year. Yeah. Well, you know, that's an interesting question. It's like, you know, how much uh, responsibility can be laid at the doors of the scientists who come up with ways to make you want to eat more, who, yeah. you know, diffuse your satiety index or whatever those me- mechanisms are. And then the actual fact that, you know, we're all kind of programmed at this point to have larger and larger portion sizes um, yeah. and no, crave I mean, the that. Solutions to obesity are really complicated. There is no silver bullet. You know, the industry itself is not the single sole answer, a changed industry, that is. It's absolutely true. There was a moment in the 80s when, you know, it became socially acceptable to eat anything, anywhere, any place, and that's when you saw people eating and drinking, walking down the street, and that played right into the hands of the food industry. Parents stopped telling their kids, you know, don't snack between meals. It's, you know, so, 
So, yeah, in some ways we help sort of foster this this growing dependency on highly processed foods. No question. I mean, I have focused on the food industry because they are so influential and so powerful, yes. A, in having helped cause the problem, but also in potentially being part of the solution. And in your research, do you find that, uh, I mean, as you just pointed out, the, the meat industry, for example, has become increasingly sensitive to the idea that uh, consumers want antibiotic-free uh, meat, they want yep. animals treated well. Um, are you seeing, uh, I mean, I don't know how you would engineer a Dorito to be a better quality product. <laughs> <laughs> Much well, as I love yeah, them, don't but, get me wrong. But, so, I mean, look, I mean, when you and look when you when you talk to smart nutritionists, they almost uniformly will tell you that one of the biggest answers to to bad eating, to obesity, is not to worry about the salt, sugar, fat, and, and, and sort of make the Dorito less bad for you, if you will, or have less of those ingredients, but rather to concentrate on ways to get us all to love. And and want and desire and crave and put on our plate vegetables and whole fruits. And so one of the things I've written about recently at the Times are smart people coming out of the junkier food industry and using some of their marketing strategies to push things like broccoli and baby <laughs> carrots. And I think this is one of the emerging things we're seeing is there are cabals of insiders within the meat industry, within the processed food manufacturing industry who want to do the right thing by consumer health. And they are starting to push inside their companies, and they're also starting to leave their companies and go to work for these startups that are scrambling for ways to do it better and do it healthier and help us all move toward healthier eating. And that, that I think that's totally fascinating and a huge part of the future in this in this uh, in this this battle we're going to have over our stomachs. Yeah. <laughs> well, Michael, I can't thank you enough for being on the show today. Um, you have a website, right? Why don't you tell I people do. what it yeah, is? I do. Yeah, it's, it's Michael Moss Books. Dot com and I and I tweet it at capital M underscore Moss uh, initial C if uh, people want to see me on social media. That's great. Thank you so much for joining us today. Congratulations on the great article and good luck Thanks with the for, book. I can't wait so to interview for you for that. And call me whenever you have another interesting article. I love talking to you. You're the best. I will do that. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Michael. We'll okay. see, you, see you folks next week. Uh, have a great week. Stay warm. And uh, thanks for listening. And thank you to my sponsor, Root 11 Potato Chips. Endorsed, you heard it here, by Michael Moss. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us with questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.